Hello, my name is Sarah Pollock and this is In the News from the Irish Times. Today we ask, is Dublin losing its cultural soul? It's been a busy week in Dublin City. Last Wednesday, protesters gathered outside a house on Prussia Street in Stony Batter after a group of men entered the building to evict squatters, causing severe damage in the process. On Thursday, news broke that the Science Gallery in Trinity College was going to close, reportedly because of its financial viability. The next day, on Friday, news emerged that another popular Dublin cultural spot was closing. I think it's the right time for us to do it. I might be wrong, I might, I might but it's a decision I've made. Ireland's largest independent bookshop, Chapters Bookstore on Parnell Street, was to close its doors after nearly 40 years in business. And then on Saturday, more than 400 protesters gathered outside the Cobblestone Pub on Smithfield Square over the proposed and planned development of hotels at the Cobblestone Pub and at Merchant's Arch in Temple Bar. We just feel like by building a hotel, it's a slow death of, of the city as we know it. But these are all very different events. What does a bookshop closing have to do with a squad eviction? It's all woven into this broader narrative about the direction of the city and cultural spaces in the city and the character and grain of the city and how that is being kind of scrubbed. Una Mullally is a columnist with the Irish Times. Una, you've been writing for a long time now about what you've described as the degradation of culture and character in Dublin City. Can you tell us some more about how cultural spaces, galleries and community areas have been affected in recent years by development plans? So there's loads and loads of stuff and it really kind of started when the commercial property market, I suppose, or development started to turn around coming out of the era of recession and places that were previously available to artists in particular to kind of work in, you know, kind of older buildings that were earmarked for development, but then it didn't happen. And then all of a sudden those kind of doors were closed off. So initially you kind of saw this wave of closure of kind of studio spaces, rehearsal spaces, and the availability of those kind of collapsed. And then you started to see it really impact nightlife, I suppose. So you had the closure of the Hangar nightclub, which used to be Andrews Lane. You had the demolition of the Tivoli Theatre. You had the hoo-ha over the Bernard Shaw site on the on the south side of the city. It's not just a bar, like it had a community ethos to it, a cultural ethos. You know, a lot of people employed there. It was open to, you know, musicians, artists, DJs. And then also, at the same time, it became more difficult for people to access space in terms of leases for bars, for restaurants, for all that kind of stuff, because an awful lot of money was coming in. And big players like Press Up, for example, had deep enough pockets to kind of buy a building or lease a building or whatever. So the independent and less wealthy nighttime or entertainment or hospitality entrepreneurs were beginning to be squeezed out. And then what you basically had simultaneously is a very, very incongruous wave of development in the city around hotels and purpose-built student accommodation. The nightlife was becoming 
not as exciting. It was becoming very difficult for people on lower incomes, artists and, you know, kids coming out of art college and all that kind of stuff to live in the city and therefore be kind of much harder for them to participate in starting various things at night. And all of that kind of mess, I guess, was pre-pandemic leading to this sense that Dublin was kind of boring, the character was going, the development was crap, the places that were opening were kind of serving, you know, a suburban audience and the underground was kind of being drained away because the spaces didn't exist because land, space and buildings had, you know, started to become such a premium. So all of that kind of feeds into then in the middle of the pandemic, then places went to the wall, like Jam Park, Club Out and Swords and uh, Jigsaw DIY space and that kind of stuff. Um, So that's where we are now, I guess. So bringing it back to the incidents and the events that we've seen in recent weeks, can you talk to me a bit about the anger that's starting to boil up? I mean, do you think this stems just from the closure of cultural spaces or is this a broader frustration over rental prices and people being priced out of their own city? I think it's kind of everything at the same time. I think there is massive discontent with the government and the ideology of the government. And, you know, we see that very clearly in the 2020 general election result and also in the kind of the shift to the left, the electorate and in the popularity of Sinn Féin. So the ideology that Fine Gael in particular have around, you know, neoliberalism, free market capitalism now appears not to be in tune with an awful lot of people. And underpinning all of that, of course, is the housing crisis. And I know I'm blue in the face from saying it, but there is a sense that those in power don't really understand the extremity of it, even though we keep saying there's a housing crisis, there's a housing crisis. So there's that. And then there's just this looking around at now what is Uh, manifesting in the city in terms of development that where there could have been housing or where there once were you know spaces that may have had potential for something to serve the community or be an interesting part of the city are now just being developed with this like really odd cookie cutter architecture that just aesthetically feels very bland and that the buildings themselves they're either hotels or purpose-built student accommodation Mm -hmm. or office blocks you know and and the the development of office blocks in the city continues at a frantic pace, which feels very bizarre because the pandemic has obviously and will kind of revolutionise office culture and how much time people are spending in places and how much office space these companies actually need. So people are connecting all of those things and there just seems to be a real despondency and a sense that the city is slipping away from the grasp of those who have engaged in it and lived in it and contributed to it. And this is not just like an anti-change or an anti-development point of view. It's something more tied to people's identity and their desire for what a city should be. People are kind of confused and frustrated about the mismatch of values, I suppose, between them and national government and then also local government. And obviously this huge frustration with the apparent lack of vision for the city and the lack of a plan. And also 
the incompatibility with like values and desires that appears to be emanating from, let's say, the executive and Dublin City Council, who are perceived to not be in tune with the desires of people who live in Dublin. So why does there seem to be so many objections to developments across Dublin emerging now? I asked Olivia Kelly, the Irish Times Dublin editor, for her read on the situation. A lot of the time, these things are quite cyclical in that you'll have what appears to people to be a glut of high rise developments or a glut of student accommodation, or a glut of hotels. And this wouldn't be recent. You would have particularly seen this back in the last boom, not so much with the student accommodation, but say during the last boom, people would have been shocked to suddenly see lots of applications for very tall buildings many of which never got built. It's here near George's Quay in Dublin that a development company wants to build the highest building in Ireland. The highest building would be almost 80 metres or 19 storeys high. Local residents... It always seems to people, and it's a a facet obviously of the media as well, because we we will report on these applications and we might do a wider feature when there appear to be a lot in a particular area. And that can be, say, an area that was maybe never developed before. And I'm thinking, say, in the last boom, it would have been the Docklands. So people would have gone, oh, my God, look at the Docklands. Mm -hmm. It's suddenly gone from two story warehouses to huge skyscrapers or at least applications for huge skyscrapers. So, as I say, a lot of the time, these things are cyclical or they're down to perception of suddenly there being a lot of one type of thing in the planning process. And let's talk about hotels first for a minute. I mean, it does feel like there's a lot of hotels springing up around Dublin. Why do you think there has been such a focus on their development now in this time as we're emerging from COVID as well? I I think there's a, a few reasons for that. There is a lot of focus, obviously, on the need for homes for people. And when people see a lot of applications for something that appear not to be homes for people, they go, well, why are we building this when what we actually need is that? Mm -hmm. Up until recent years, very few hotels were being built in Dublin and we would have had a different sort of story. We would have had lots of stories about the sky high price of hotels every time there's a big concert on every time there's a big match on, any of those sorts of things. And you would have had from the Irish Times to Joe Duffy, people ringing up and going, I was charged 250 quid for something that wasn't any better than a crappy B&B. So we, we have had, Fulge Ireland would say this as well, a deficit of hotels. Now, there may be too many hotel applications, which may in the future result in too many hotels. But I, I'd say Fault Ireland would still say we're, we're in something of a deficit still in terms of hotels. And you could argue as well that more hotels might mean fewer uh, apartments being used for Airbnb because people would have the option of cheaper hotels rather than apartments. And, and that obviously has been a problem over the last few years of people renting out what could be homes for tourists. And what about the planning for these hotels? I mean, could you demystify for us how these decisions are made and just briefly talk through the procedure? And do you believe the procedure is transparent enough? 
I do think it's transparent. I think the reason why maybe a lot of people aren't familiar with it is it's boring. <laughs> you can't call the planning process exciting, but mm. it very much is transparent because there is essentially every local authority will have their either their city or county development plan. And that's where everything stems from. So when an application comes in to the city council, you will have the planners refer to the development plan and see, well, does it fit in with what's in the development plan? And anyone at any time can go and look at their city and county development plan. They're all either in the council offices or these days are actually online. And you can also make submissions every five years to the new city and county development plan. That isn't very common. Landowners and developers are more likely to be the people who make submissions to their development plan. And, and really, if more so-called ordinary people did it, it might have a better impact on the sort of development plan you get in the end. Olivia, in recent weeks, online petitions have emerged calling for planned and proposed developments at Merchant's Arch by the Haypenny Bridge and the Cobblestone Pub in Smithfield to be shelved. There have also been protests about these plans, most recently last Saturday with a march along the Quays and a protest, Cayley, on O'Connell Bridge. How effective are these protests and online petitions, do you think? Do they affect actual change? Some people will just sign the online petition and leave it at that. But I wonder when people are signing an online petition, do they think they're in some way participating in the planning process? Now they're not. The only way you can participate in the planning process is to make a submission on the application to Dublin City Council. And the planners can have no regard to that online petition whatsoever. But I think sometimes these sorts of things make people take that extra step of making a submission. I think it's probably over 100 submissions have been made to the City Council. And that's rare enough that you would get that number of objections or submissions mm. on any planning application. So I'd say yes, the protests and the online petition were, were probably effective in getting some people to make submissions. Now, the thing is, it's on what basis they're making submissions. Are they looking at the planning documents and saying, the reason this hotel or this development or this scheme shouldn't be permitted is X, Y and Z. I've looked at the planning documents and X, Y and Z, because that's how the planners will take you seriously. But a lot of those submissions that were made to the planning process were made after the online petition was set up, but before there were any planning documents on the council's website. So I would say a lot of people didn't actually know what was proposed for that site when they made their application. And I, I read a lot of them and a lot of them said, don't allow these people to demolish the, the cobblestone. Well, like a submission like that is just going to be set aside by the planners because it means nothing because the cobblestone isn't being demolished. So if someone really wants to affect change, I mean, is is putting in a submission the best way or what other angles are there? Could you, would contacting a local councillor help, a local TD? I mean, if you have someone, there's clearly a lot of passion around these developments. So what is the best route for affecting some sort of change if you want that? Well, I would say yes, contacting your local councillor and they might put in a a submission on your behalf and they'll they'll be well versed, you know, in, in what to put into that submission 
to make it be taken seriously by the planners. Now, that's not to say any ordinary person's submission won't be taken seriously by mm. the, the planners. If it's well thought out and it's well reasoned and it's well argued, it will. But as well, I would say, if it's not just a specific development, but you are opposed to the sort of development that's going on in, in the city in general, if you say, I think there are too many hotels. Yeah, you get onto your local councillor and you say, when the development plan is being voted on, I think we're allowing too much hotel development. I think we're allowing too much student accommodation development. Or perhaps you think the opposite of that. But yes, you get onto your councillors and they can put a motion into the development plan to that effect. And where does Dublin City Council come into all of this and the power that they hold over this? I mean, are chief executives listening to all of these protests and submissions that have been going on over the last few weeks? Well, you have to think about it. That everyone is bound by the statutory planning process. The, the chief executive or the or the councillors, neither of them can can walk down to the planner's office and say, hey, you do this, do that. You know, the planners have to abide by what's in the development plan or what's in national policy. They'll have national guidelines as well as their own development plan guidelines. And that's that's what they refer to. It's not as basic as a checklist, but that's what they have. They have planning policy either, as I say, given to them from the government or given to them through the development plan. We've seen in our in our history what interference from outside that that process has done, you know, it's led to tribunals and it's led to the, the establishment of what we have now, planning regulator. Checks and balances are there for a reason so that planners, ordinary workers aren't being put under pressure to do something that's contrary to a development plan. If you want to change things, if councillors want to change things, they do it through the development plan. Would all this be a lot easier if Dublin had a democratically elected mayor? So one person in charge that they have chosen who they can lobby towards and react politically against and who can bring all these issues to the planning authorities? Yeah, yeah, maybe. But again, they would be responsible for setting policy, yes. But once policy is in place, they can't interfere with individual planning decisions. So I'm not sure how different that would be to the current arrangement we have of, you know, city councillors uh, and, and, and the council executive in that regard. But you could say it would be a stronger voice for making new policy. But it's always going to be, even when they're making policy, they're going to be doing it in tandem with the, the councillors. We're still going to have city councillors. You know, it'll be made in the round in that in that sort of scenario. And finally, I want to ask you, in his submission to the council over the development of the Cobblestone pub, Green Party MEP Kieran Cuff said the scheme exceeded the city's development plan limits for the site in relation to both the height and the plot ratio. And he also said that the urban grain of the city will be severely damaged by the proposed development. This is along the same lines of the argument that many people have made around hotel developments and student accommodation developments in the city, that they're killing off Dublin's culture and Dublin's soul. As the Irish Times Dublin editor, Olivia, and someone who's lived in this city for for many years, do you feel that this is true, that we're killing something off through all these developments? Oh, well, do I? (laughs) I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. You know, we have a we have an astonishing level of dereliction and vacancy in the city centre. And I think it's a good thing that a lot of these sites are being developed. 
what I think people will argue over is the quality of what's being developed on these sites. There is government policy that will will override the city development plan in, ter- in terms of heights. You know, we're, we, we are going to have taller buildings. But yeah, I think a lot of these sites, they, they would they'd be a, an awful lot better if they were developed than they are now. But yeah, in that rush to develop, you, you have to make sure that what you're putting in there is, is decent quality and will, will last the test of time. Coming up, what changes are needed to save the cultural fabric of Dublin City? So, you know, what changes do you think are needed here in the city? I mean, where do we start? Is it more investment? Is it an overhaul of government legislation? Or is it the council level where they're drawing up the next development plan? Or is it all three of those? Or is it an entirely different approach? I think there's loads of things. I think that it's so big, this ideology around land speculation. And it does mean if you're focusing solely on how much money you can squeeze from a site or a building or a new development, then there is no room for something that isn't driven by profit. And that's why you're seeing this stuff even bleed out to the suburbs now with demolishing the Stalorgan Bowl, the Leisureplex, with Tolka Park potentially not being a sports amenity anymore. And let's say you had a building that was all like artist studios. If the only kind of aim or the only game in town, I suppose, is profit linked to land speculation, why would you keep that space and not develop it as a hotel or or build to rent apartments or or PBSA? So, I mean, profound ideological shift is Mm. one of the things. Like there are smaller things that can be done in terms of, let's say, a lot of the stuff that's changing at the moment around licensing or going to change and that different cultural spaces can get these temporary licenses. And that's really good. And maybe that will inject some kind of newness into the culture at night or, you know, the general creative and artistic culture in the city. But I think we are also going to see a lot of retail closing. And I think that and there are still like empty retail Celtic Tiger era, empty retail units, ground floor in a lot of developments around the city. I think a good plan for those would to be have a culture first or community first option on them. I'm not sure how you would do that, but I think it's a good idea. And I also think that we need to have a situation where cultural spaces and creative spaces and artists aren't living in this constant realm of uncertainty and instability. So for you, Una, what should the vision for Dublin look like going forward? I mean, how do we move away from the anger and frustration that has been building up as you've laid out for us over the past few years and develop a city that people are happy with and that they can feel proud of? I don't think there's going to be a profound shift anytime soon. There's very little conversation that I can hear happening around this at government level. There's a very antagonistic uh, relationship now between the council and the people, whatever that means. Dublin City Council's reputation is not flying high amongst the citizens of Dublin. And that's a pity because they also do good work as well. But in terms of what needs to happen, I mean, I, I don't really see this being resolved soon. I think that people are kind of waiting 
given the severity of the housing crisis for a large housing movement to coalesce, which I think it will. And I think that people are waiting for political change. You know, we see that in the polls. Mm -hmm. And I think that there are a lot of fundamentals that need to start to kick in. Like we need local government reform. It's boring, but like it would transform the city. I feel like people are really, a lot of people are very almost nihilistic or something. Um, And I know that I also get loads of kickback for being negative or alarmist or whatever. Like, I wish I was being alarmist because everything that I was saying, you know, five, six years ago, where people were saying to me that I was talking through my hat has now come to pass. You know, I don't take any pleasure in that. I do feel that as the temperature kind of rises, if there are other catalyst moments around a beloved place being knocked or redeveloped or these kind of evictions of squatters, or if there are kind of something else extreme happens with regards to the housing crisis, there will be protests and those protests are going to be angry. People are really annoyed and they're also suffering. And the daily stress of the housing crisis is, I I just think it's huge, you know, and I'm lucky to, to not have to directly experience it myself just through circumstance. But like when I look around you know, my peers and my friends and people who are have like good jobs and are, you know, really talented and they're really struggling, mm. you know, and, and because of housing, you know, a lot of it can kind of cripple people's motivation that you become so despondent or you're so preoccupied with the day to day struggle that you can't advocate for yourself and you can't get out of protest. But when people do, I'm, I'm not convinced it's going to be pretty. And again, I think people would be like, oh, you're blowing things out of proportion. But I don't know. The pandemic has also given people a lot of time to think and look around and go, why are things like this? That's all for today. You can read more from both Una Mullally and Olivia Kelly on the development of Dublin into the future on irishtimes.com. In the news, we'll be back on Friday.